You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone beside you or across from you the title of my sermon this morning, Expert Witnesses, Part 1. Before we get into it, I just want to wish every father in the room and any father-to-be in the room a happy Father's Day. Amen? Yes, let's give a round of applause to our, our, our earthly fathers here. Um, we, we know that our, our church is filled with godly men that, that point us to the, the heart of the Father, our Heavenly Father. And we are so thankful and grateful for the ways that you have led your family, the ways that you have led your children, and raised them up to be God-fearing, God-honoring, God-loving uh, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, happy Father's Day. Hopefully your kids will be treating you out uh, today or tomorrow. Uh, I hope my kids will be, but they're broke so I don't think that's going to happen. Um, But we are going to get back into our Gospel of John series that we picked up uh, last week again. But before we get into that church, I I, I have to, you know, confess to you something that has been sort of a guilty pleasure of mine these past few months, maybe these past few weeks. And, And I'm confessing this because I need to get this off my chest. But, you know, something that I've been delighting in for the past few weeks has been the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial uh, oh my goodness, what a fiasco it's been. Anybody else following this? Yes, there's more people than that. I know it. We already had the discussion. Yeah, right. Come on, it's all over social media, right? But it's been, it's been such, a, such an interesting thing to be watching. So much drama, so much, so much uh, eventful things taking place. A dog stepping on a bee, like, uh, you know, like, ah, uh, it's so great. Uh, but it's been interesting. I think the reason why I've been, been watching it and what, what's kept me glued to this trial, I, I mean, it's over now, but nonetheless, I think what's kept me glued to it has been this sort of this, this desire to see sort of the lies exposed and, and justice served, right? It's like, it's this, this, like, come on, just one more thing, just, you know, it's almost done and, and hopefully the truth will come out and there's that drive there. Now, what's interesting, it, what elevated sort of the, the dramatic experience, I don't know if you, 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 you all felt this who've been keeping up with this trial but whenever they'd bring in these 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 witnesses right these witnesses and and so johnny's team would bring in these 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 um these witnesses that would totally contradict all the testimonies that from amber heard's team and and then of course amber heard's team would just bring in these expert witnesses that that uh, would come up then once they're cross-examined they're like ah maybe they're not really experts at all now I bring that all up, I bring that this morning, not because I'm still obsessed with the trial, no, but because that's exactly what's happening in our passage this morning, in, our, in, in the Gospel of John, where we pick up. If you remember the context of our passage, Jesus is sort of in this mini-trial himself. After healing this man on the Sabbath at the, the Pool of Bethesda, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, question him about his authority to heal on the Sabbath, right? Of course, Jesus' response to that was to equate himself with God himself by calling God his Father. And therefore, he is therefore equal to God in nature, equal to God in power and authority. You have to understand in the Jewish faith, this was blasphemy, punishable, punishable by death. No man was equal to God, yet here was Jesus saying that he was. So now what follows in our passage and all the way through to the end of this chapter is Jesus bringing out his 
expert witnesses. Witnesses that would testify on his behalf of his credibility, of, his validi- of, of the validity of his claims. This idea of having witnesses in the Jewish society or in the Jewish faith was so crucial to how their society ran, how, how they followed the law. And that's because it was a prerequisite for the truth or, or, or justice itself. Your claims, of, uh, your claims about yourself or another could not be justified by yourself, right? You needed witnesses. In fact, two or three witnesses was the rule of thumb. And we get that from the law of Moses. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19... Deuteronomy chapter 19 to 15. It's going to be up on the screen anyways, but here's some reference for you. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. He says the same thing back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So the principle was no testimony or accusation could be accepted unless two or three witnesses gathered together to validate it, to make, uh, to, to make that claim or to make that charge. The standard for witnesses were, was so high according to the Mosaic law that if you were to bear a false witness, it was actually punishable by death. Let's look a bit at Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you're still there again. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16 to 19. Now the passage following what we just read. This is again after God establishes the two or three witnesses principle. He says, if a malicious witness meaning someone who, right, who, who, who just wants to get somebody in trouble, arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if you bore false witness about someone in order to have them executed or be put in a jail or, or be fined or something, and it was proven that you were a false witness, the law required that you then would be put in prison or, or fined or put to death. And if that wasn't enough, let's go back to the other Deuteronomy passage where Moses establishes the witness principle in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He says in verse 7, the verse right after that, the hand of the witness shall be the first against to put or shall be first against him to put him to death and after the hand of all the people so shall pur- so you sh- so you shall purge the evil from your midst the principle here is that if you are testifying that somebody deserves the death penalty the responsibility of putting that individual to death falls on you the witness first, before the judge, before the people themselves. The point of this is that the Bible made it very difficult for someone to falsify a testimony. And rightly so, because, again, one of the Ten Commandments itself is literally, do not bear false witness. It's foundational to the laws of the Jewish society and even our society. So if you're going to be an expert witness, you need to be very sure that what you are saying is indeed true and not false. 
or, or not based on, on any lie. Because again, the, the expectation or the fear is that if you bore force, false witness, you could be liable to uh, the death penalty yourself. Now, of course, human nature, people abuse this principle of two or three witnesses. It's easy enough to pay someone, right? To come up on the stand and testify on your behalf or on somebody, somebody else's account. And in fact, we even see an example of this in the Bible. Remember when Jesus gets taken, taken before the Sanhedrin, before he's crucified, and the Sanhedrin had to pay people just to bear false witness about Jesus so that he'd be deserving of death. Now, another way to get around sort of this witness principle was simply to discredit the witness, similar to, to how we see in modern-day trials, right? If you, can, if you can discredit a witness, you can also discredit their testimony. And we see this example in Scripture as well. Remember the shepherds, if you will, at the birth of Christ, who, who witnessed the birth of Christ. It's so interesting that God would use shepherds as his first witnesses of, of the, the Messiah's birth, because Society, in terms of society, the shepherds were never asked to be, be witnesses at a trial. Because again, they, they thought that they were, they were sort of the lowest of society, just right above women. And speaking of women, right? We were talking about this in life groups this past week. It's interesting that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ were actually the women disciples, right? It's interesting that, that the, those that God chooses are, are not those who are in high class, those who are, are that credible, in, so to speak, but he chooses even the least of society to testify about his truth, about his gospel. So now, that's sort of the background and the context of what's happening in our passage. Jesus had testified to these Pharisees that he was the son of God, equal to God in nature, in power, and in authority. So now, in order to back his claims, he has to bring in these witnesses to testify and validate that what he said is actually true. So we see Jesus' expert, expert witnesses in the closing part or the closing passages of chapter 5. Who are his witnesses? Well, first one is John the Baptist, then God the Father, and the Word of God. Like, if you ever wanted expert witnesses to testify for you, this is it, right? This is like the highest authority. This is like the dream team. This is like the, 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 the current roster of the Golden State Warriors, right? Like, woo, finals, right? Ama- like, amazing. So, like, this is it. This is it. And you, you can't get any better than this. So for the next few weeks in our study of the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at what each of these witnesses has to say about Jesus and how that should impact or how, how that should uh, inform our own perception of Christ as well as our response to him. This morning in particular, we are going to examine John the Baptist and his expert witness of Christ. We'll, we'll, we'll be unpacking how we can be an expert witness similar to that of John. What it, what it means to be a credible witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world today. And church, my hope as we unpack this passage this morning and John's expert witness is to consider whether or not our own testimony would testify to the credibility, to the, to, to the lordship of Christ. If we were called to, to the stand to testify on, on behalf of Christ, would we, would, be, would we be considered an expert witness, as a credible witness of the Savior? I want us to examine our own lives and see if our Christian witness could, could match up or line up with what the Bible calls us to be. Because again, if, if it falls short, if we fall short, the, the, the challenge is set before us, right? To change. 
Because, again, if our witness is off, understand that we make it so easy for the world and the devil and, and every enemy of the gospel to discredit our Savior. This is why it's important that our witness is on, is, is on par with, with what the Word of God tells us it should be. So let's jump into our passage this morning as we cross-examine our first expert witness, John the Baptist. Everyone say, jump with me. Amen. Our passage begins with a summary of all the claims that Jesus has already made in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He doesn't do anything on his own because what he does, the Father does. He, he does also. He, he listens to the Father. The Father has given him authority to judge. Therefore, his judgments are just. He doesn't act on his own will. He, he does what the Father's will is. Jesus is just summarizing everything that he already just claimed in the previous passages. Remember, this is all in response to the Pharisees accusing him of breaking Sabbath laws and even committing blasphemy, right? And maybe when, when, when he said uh, that he was the, 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 the son of God, making him equal with God. Jesus is arguing that he's only doing the will of the Father. Therefore, he's not guilty of breaking any Sabbath laws, right? You, you can hear the full explanation of that in the previous sermons that we've already discussed. So now, with that summary said, Jesus, Jesus says something to get ahead of the Pharisees in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. See, Jesus knows that for these legalistic, law-worshipping Pharisees, they're going to call out the fact that he's testifying about himself. In fact, later in the Gospel of John, we'll see another incident where people call Jesus out for testifying about himself. Remember, in the Jewish society, you could, you could, you could not be taken seriously unless you had witnesses to back up your claims. So in this case, Jesus is addressing the need for witnesses before the Pharisees themselves could address it for him. Again, these are all, the, all in the references of Deuteronomy passage, the Deuteronomy passages that we looked at just earlier. So now, Jesus brings out his first expert witness. He says, verse 32, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus says, Here's my first witness, and I know his testimony is true, and in fact, you'll agree with me on this, John the Baptist. Now, this is not the first time that John the Baptist is considered to be one of the greatest witnesses of, of the claims of Christ. If you remember from the beginning of John's gospel, the apostle John also presents John the Baptist as his witness of Christ uh, or Jesus' messiahship. And the apostle's first witness also was John the Baptist himself. At the very beginning of the gospel, after John has declared Jesus as being the word of God that has been there for all of eternity, in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 6 to 7, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. If you recall, John was considered to be the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And Jesus recognized that. And not only that, but he knew that the Pharisees did as well. It's why in our main passage, again, he says, You sent to John, and he was born witness to the truth. This is verse 33 now. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, You yourselves went to John and sought out his teachings. 
So you know that he's credible. You know that what he said was indeed true. Now Jesus is doing something great here. He's implicating the Pharisees in in John's testimony, right? He's giving John more credibility by the fact that the Pharisees themselves went to John to be taught as well, to be be witness of of the, the truth that he is proclaiming. But then Jesus clarifies something very important as he goes to verse 34, and we go to verse 34 of our passage. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus is making it clear that his identity isn't validated by man. It doesn't matter what any man or woman believes about him. His identity as the Son of God remains the same. Even if all his disciples turned away or abandoned him or, didn't, or stopped believing in him, his testimony, his power, his authority, his nature, his ability to save is not dependent on the sentiments of any human being or any belief of any man. His identity as a Christ is not dependent on, on whether or not we, we have a good day or a bad day or whether or not he gives us what we want or whether or not he meets our human expectations. He is God and he, he remains the same nonetheless. Now, even though that's the case, right, he, again, even though he says that his, his testimony, who he is, is not dependent on the testimony of man, Jesus then justifies why he's using this man, John the Baptist, as his witness. He says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved. That's the point. That's the reason why Jesus is bringing in a witness that is a man, that is finite, that is fallible. It's because he desires that these Pharisees who are accusing him to be saved. He knows that if someone from their own ilk, someone from their own tribe were to testify, they were more likely to believe. Remember, John was from the tribe of Levite. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest. His mom, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron the high priest, the brother of Moses. So, so if there is anyone that they would believe, it was John the Baptist himself. By the way, it's the same reason why God uses us to share the gospel, our testimonies to present the truth, because he knows that we as human beings are more likely to believe something when someone like us believes it as well. When someone who has gone through the same struggles, who has gone through the same experiences, the same difficulties, we are more likely to believe them. This is why Paul says right after, you know, in 1 Timothy, right after he talks about being the chief of sinners, how, how he was a persecutor of the church. He says right after this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So that's why Jesus brings in John the Baptist as his expert witness for the Pharisees to believe. From there, Jesus goes on to explain why, why, why John is, is a credible witness. He says in verse 35, he says, He was a burning, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees of how they too went down to, to the Jordan to hear John's message of repentance. Like, like some of the Jews of the day, they too believed that John was the, was the Elijah that was supposed to come before the Messiah. And because of it, for a while they rejoiced in John's light, in his, in his presence, in his teachings. Jesus was again using the Pharisees' own sentiments to validate the credibility of John the Baptist. Because if they believed John, then they should also believe Jesus, since John testified about 
Christ, about Jesus being the Son of God, the, the, the Christ, the, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, as John said. And Jesus brings it back to his earlier point that he doesn't need man to testify about him and that his very works, the same works that he's doing on behalf of God, validate his identity. That's verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So again, Christ's identity as the Son of God is not dependent on, on human opinion or sentiment or belief. He is God nonetheless. So that's, that's, John, that's Jesus' first witness, John the Baptist. Again, if you want to learn more about that, we did a full sermon on who John the Baptist was back in chapter 1 of this, this series. So it's all there. You can listen to the podcast. So now, in the time that we have left, let's discuss how we can be a witness like John the Baptist. So that if ever God calls us to witness to, to, or testify to unbelievers, they could see or hear that our testimony is indeed true, that it actually validates the claims of, of Christ in, in God's word, right? Uh, so let's take a look at this. Uh, so how do we become a witness like John the Baptist? How do we become a witness like John the Baptist? First and foremost, we need to find favor with all. Find favor with all. It says again in our passage, verse 33, it says, You sent to John. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. I love the point that Jesus brings up to these religious leaders. The the Pharisees themselves turned to John for answers. Despite his unorthodox approach to ministry, despite him wearing camel's hair for clothing and eating locusts in the wilderness, John's witness was so beloved by the Jews that even the Pharisees, those who would eventually turn on him, came to him for answers. Even his enemies came to him and gave him favor. Throughout scripture, we see examples of men and women who handle themselves in such a way that it garners the favor of unbelievers and therefore bringing glory to God and even pointing these unbelievers to God himself. You have Joseph in in Genesis and the favor that he receives from Pharaoh and even Potiphar. You have Daniel and Esther who, who gain the favor of the Babylonian and the Persian kings. Even Jesus himself. It says, when Jesus was growing up in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The point is, if we want to have a similar witness as John the Baptist, we must live a life that develops a good rapport with even unbelievers. Listen, sometimes what makes believers look bad are other believers. I think we know this to be true. Sometimes what becomes a stumbling block for unbelievers to believe the gospel is not, is not the gospel itself or the hardness of their heart or their sinful lifestyles, although that is definitely a part of it for sure. But it's their experience with people who claim to be Christians but don't behave or demonstrate a Christian lifestyle or the love of God or the peace of God. Paul says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There are Christians out there who are, who are just out confrontational, right? All, the, all, all truth and no grace and just judging people left and right. Like, you get judged, you get judged, right? You know, check under your seat. Judgment. And listen, if it's not being confrontational, it's the attitude that, that we're better than unbelievers. That, in other words, we're holier than thou, right? That, you know, oh, I'm too holy to, and righteous to hang out with so-and-so after work because I do not want to taint my, good, my innocence in Christ. 
Listen, let's all say this together, right? Get over yourself. Yeah? Right? The ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. We're all just beggars pointing each other to where there's bread. The only thing that separates us and unbelievers is who? Jesus. That's it. We cannot find favor with all if we are, we are literally trying to start fights with all, right? Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 32, he says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, that's the point right there. We're not trying to be people pleasers just so that, you know, we don't get persecuted or we get along with everybody, but for the sake of the gospel, so that there'd be doors open in our communities, in our workplaces, in our school places, so that we can bring the gospel to the, to the lost, to the unbelievers, so we can share the gospel to them. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21 says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I, might, that I may share with them in its blessing. Remember in our passage, the reason why Jesus brings John the Baptist as his first witness, as his first expert witness, is, is so that the Pharisees would believe. Even his enemies would believe. If we want to have a similar witness like John, we must first find favor with all. Don't be confrontational. Don't walk as if you're holier than thou, right? Again, the, foot is, the, 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 the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. So now, ask yourself, right? What's your standing with your unbelieving co-workers right now? When they think about you, when they see you, what, how do they see you? How do they perceive you? Are, do, they see as, do they see you as, oh, that's brother so, that, that's, that's, you know, that's Jim from the office, and he's, you know, everyone can approach him. He's very likable. Or do, do they see you as, we can never approach this person. Dwight Schrute, right? Like he's someone that you can't come to. How do they see you? Do, do you, found, do you? Have you found favor in the eyes of unbelievers at your workplaces, at your, at your schools, maybe even in your family? Would your unbelieving friends and family uh, consider you as someone to go, tr- go to, to get answers for the truth? Similar to how the Pharisees went to John the Baptist to, to get answers of the truth as well. Are you an approachable Christian? Find favor with all. Secondly, if we want to have a witness similar to that of John, we must be, be an example to all. Be an example to all. In verse 35, Jesus describes John as being a burning and shining lamp. The imagery of a burning and shining lamp in Scripture represents the ability to show the way, a light that endures in the darkness and illuminates the path that one should go to. If you know your Psalms, you, the word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Similarly, John the Baptist was one who showed others the way to go. Remember, he was a voice crying in the wilderness, crying out, prepare you the way of the Lord. Now take note, John wasn't being an example of how one should dress or, how, what, or what to eat. It wasn't about the externals. 
John was an example of what to believe, of where to put your faith in. And he was an example of repentance and the necessity to follow God and the convictions that ultimately dictate how we ought to live. Similarly, in order to have a witness like John, we must be an example to the world of what to put our faith in, what it means to have convictions from the Bible. And as we always say here at Plus Life, right, we must live a life that is worthy of the gospel that has saved us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is about integrity. This is about consistency between what we believe and how we live our lives. Our our vision to see lives changed by the gospel, it's not just a vision that we want to see as a church, but it's a vision that unbelievers ought to see through us as well. Our witness is meant to display the power of Christ to actually change lives, to, to set people apart for the glory of God, to change and, 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 and break people free from sin and give us peace from anxieties. If you recall, that's how the early church started, in fact. In Acts chapter 2, the believers were doing things that, that, that weren't common to society. They were breaking bread together. They were sharing all that they had together. They were worshiping God together. There were, there were a family of believers, a local church that was so committed to each other and the propagation of the gospel. And the fruit of that is unbelievers looked in and they desired after that. And, in the, and the Bible says that there were souls added to their numbers day by day. They were an example of people who had truly encountered the risen Savior, who had truly been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, this is what our witness ought to be, whether individually or corporately. We ought to be examples of lives changed by the gospel. Jesus says in the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, church, ask yourself, again, by the way that you are living, would unbelievers want your faith? want to know about your convictions, the convictions that you have? Would they see a difference between the way that you behave and how the rest of the world behaves? Would they even know that you're a Christian? Do do your unbelieving co-workers and, and unbelieving classmates know that you're a believer in Christ? And if so, what would they say about the Christian faith through your example? What would they say about Christ through your witness? Would they be drawn to Christ? Or as we talked about earlier, would they be repulsed? If we want to be a witness similar to that of John, we must be an example to all. An example to all. Now the last example we get from John is that if we want to be a witness like him, we must preach the truth to all. Preach the truth to all. John, in verse 35, or a passage in John, it says that he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. This is interesting because as much as John found favor with all and how, how he was an example to all of the kind of faith that God was calling the Jewish people to, at the end of the day, some of his followers, followers namely the Pharisees, decided to leave him. 
Hence why Jesus says they only followed John and rejoiced in his ministry for a while, meaning for a short time period, meaning that at some point it stopped, it ended. Why is that? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, this is, uh, this is what happened. But when he saw men, this is, John, or this is talking about John's interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, the, to his baptism, he said to him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The reason why these religious leaders stopped basking in John's light is because John called them out on their sin. John called them to repentance. He, he, he preached the truth. Sure, sure, it was okay for them to follow John as long as, he, as, he did, as long as it didn't cost them anything, as long as they didn't have to change. But once they were told the truth, they too had to, that, they, that they too had to repent. It was too much for them. They left. Here's the point. As much as having a good witness requires us to have favor with all, and to be an example to all with, with the kind of faith and kind of convictions that we are calling people to, it does not mean that we compromise on the truth. It does not mean that we compromise on the call to repentance. In a world that is so full of absolute nonsense and, and, and lies masquerading as virtues and truth, God's people must fulfill their role to be a pillar and buttress of the truth in our world. And listen, it's not about being confrontational as, as we just talked about, right? The reality is the truth is always, the truth always turns people away who prefer living in lies. But it does not mean that we hide the truth. It does not mean that we sugarcoat it or, or, or dilute it. Nor does that also mean that we don't speak the truth with grace. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 verse 6, that your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Remember, truth without grace is brutality, but grace without truth is complicity. Remember that, uh, let's put it this way, right? Remember that truth without grace is just mean, but grace without truth is just meaningless. We must preach the truth with much grace and wisdom. Now, now, notice that, that I said preach, not speak the truth, right? The world wants you to speak the truth all the time, right? Speak your truth, speak your truth. It's as if, you know, your truth is what is true and, and truth is just relative. And No, the Bible calls us not to speak our truth, but the truth, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. We are called to preach Christ. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of a holy God who sent his son to save sinners like us who only deserve hell and his wrath. We're called to proclaim the, truth, the, truths, the truths of Christ who, who took our place on the cross, who died the death that we should have died, who took on our punishment for sin. Ask yourself, have you preached the truth to your unbelieving friends? Have you shared the gospel to your unbelieving relatives. Even if you are rejected, even if you are ostracized, have you called people to repent? Or do you compromise on the truth? Do you sugarcoat it? 
You say what everyone else is saying just so that you would get along with everyone at work and people don't look at you weird. If we want to be a witness like John, then we must boldly proclaim the truth. Knowing that it'll, it's God who will ultimately deal with whoever hears it. It's God who will ultimately sway even the hardest of hearts when they hear the truth of the gospel. So again, as we close here, if we want to be an expert witness like John the Baptist, we must find favor with all. We must get along with all. It's a matter of, of living peaceably with all, as, as the Apostle Paul calls us to do. We must be an example to all of the kind of faith, the kind of conviction, the kind of life that the gospel changes us, or that changes us towards, that Christ is calling people to. And we must preach the truth to all unapologetically, boldly, with much grace. For those who are unbelievers in the room who are listening to my voice, who have yet to put their faith in this, this Christ that John the Baptist was testifying about, that he was an expert witness on. Listen, we don't need John the Baptist in our midst, right, to testify about Christ. This room is filled with Expert witnesses of the power of God to change lives. The power of God to take sinners, sinful men and women, and redeem them and forgive them and pour out much love and grace on them and bringing them to new life. For those who have yet to put their faith in Christ, here are your witnesses. A room filled of of people who love the Lord, who fear the Lord, and who live for his glory because God has done something in them, has changed their lives. For the believers, for us believers who, who, who are in the faith, and again, Paul calls us in the, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We must consider how our witness, how our testimony to the outside world affects our testimony of Christ, of his gospel. Answer for yourself, will your witness validate the claims of our Savior? Would your witness validate the claims of our Savior? If not, then something has to change. The call for everyone is to repent. To repent. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask for mercy once again in this time. Lord, we recognize the the ways that we have stumbled in our day-to-day lives. We recognize, Lord, the ways that we really aren't great ambassadors of you, Lord. Where instead of bringing you glory, we Defame where we, we prove to unbelievers, God, that, that there's no change in us, or that there's a lack of change in us. And for that, God, we ask for forgiveness. We ask God for your help. We ask God for, the, for strength from your spirit to empower us to live for your glory.
to live lives worthy of the gospel that we believe has changed us, that we believe has saved us. We ask God for help that we might be witnesses to unbelievers, to the world, to our family members who are lost, to our co-workers who, have, who don't know you. Help us, O oh God. Help us to find favor with all, to be an example to all, to preach the truth with boldness to all. God, this is our desire to walk in obedience to your will, to your word, to walk in your spirit. And we confess, oh God, again, just the sins that get in the way. And I pray, oh God, that you would remind us of the joy of your salvation. Joy, oh Lord, that to overflow to those around us that others might see the hope that we have in you, the joy that we have in you, the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would put an urgency in our hearts, a deep desire to see lives changed by the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.